I was very lucky when I was a sophomore in university when we started Gen FKD uh, to meet Bernie Marcus, who was a co-founder of Home Depot, uh, and fundamentally believed that millennials didn't have or are not turning out to have the same level of opportunity that he did when he started Home Depot, uh, and was very interested in our idea, which was to equip more millennials to be in the financial position and to be in the economic situation. To uh, buy their first house. To buy their first house. And do renovations. Right, to do renovations so that they, Depot, you know, the stock right? price of Home Depot would go up. <laughs> or, in or, his words, right. to start the next Home Depot. Justin Dent is the co-founder and executive director of Gen FKD, a nonprofit dedicated to getting millennials smarter about their finances before it's too late. He's a millennial himself. He graduated from the University of Maryland just a couple of years ago. With the tax changes that are wending their way through Congress and the questions about who they'll help or hurt, it's worth having a bit of an American family meeting and thinking about just how we got into this sorry state and how we get out. Dent has taken a bold step at a young age toward doing exactly that. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to tune in, but Overcast, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Mainly, I want you to subscribe however you choose to do it so we can keep this thing going automatically. Justin didn't come from money, neither did I. We're both African Americans, though from different generations, who grew up on the East Coast and had to fight the odds to get into a better financial position. Here's Justin Dent. Uh, millennials are screwed in terms of the economy. Aren't we all no, screwed? We all are screwed, but I think millennials have a little bit longer to stay in the economy than the baby booners and, and Gen Xers. So we have more time to suffer this and to surf it out and to figure it out. And so it's important that we have an idea of what we're doing in terms of our personal finances, but also just an idea generally of what's happening in the economy and the trends and what's going on so that we can make the right decisions uh, and not just be subject to kind of the whims and as the wind blows. Why are we screwed? Because the economy is changing so quickly, particularly in terms of labor right now, that our education system, and this goes into why we've made the pivot, isn't keeping up and isn't preparing us adequately. I was at a conference recently and a lot of the execs from IBM and Google and Apple were talking and this fact was thrown out that even I was surprised at, which is the average shelf life for any skill now is about five years. You know, and that's in a large part because of things like artificial intelligence, right, which we're, are now part of this, the general lexicon of conversation around the economy uh, and just job disruption because of technology. And so we need to make sure that we have the adequate skills to keep up. And then just on the personal finance level, you know, we live in a country right now where even the average American isn't comfortable paying $500 in a $500 emergency bill. That's not good. Right? We, all want, we all believe that we should feel economically secure, regardless of what's happening, and happening on the macro trends. Uh, so our goal is to really make sure that people get that level of security in the millennial generation uh, so that we can do things such as, say, for one, 401ks, invest, and just be comfortable and do what you know, our parents did, which were buy homes, have families, and be comfortable in doing that. How much of that do millennials have control over? I mean... The, the economy has clearly changed. I don't know. You whippersnappers are supposed to be the ones <laughs> who are, who are like all that. savvy on Twitter and Snapchat yeah. and teaching 
the rest of us, I don't know, I, I saw something on, on Twitter today, uh, somebody out of DC, I think, saying, you can tell the Gen Xers from the Millennials in meetings because the Gen Xers have notepads and the Millennials have laptops. And I'm like, what? That's I mean, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, I'm 40, <laughs> but I don't remember the last time I took a notepad right. to a meeting without right. my phone. But, but anyway, I mean, aren't Millennials supposed to be all tech savvy, at least when it comes to usage? Where's the disconnect? Yeah, so we're tech savvy. We know how to use Twitter and we know how to use Snapchat. Snapchat's not going to help us with artificial driving, you know, or autonomous driving, excuse me, or artificial intelligence. You know, we know how to use platforms. We're digital natives, and we have an easier time to adapt these new skills. Uh, but even when you think about things like critical thinking, you know, there uh, was a piece in the Wall Street Journal recently about uh, the CLA exam, mm -hmm. and which is used to test critical thinking, and found that. Most schools aren't preparing students to think critically. Even some of the best state universities, you know, students went in freshman year, graduated senior year, and had actually reduced their critical thinking skills. You know, that's <laughs> problematic, lost a few right? Brain cells yeah, along exactly. The way of any of these, yeah. You know, there are a couple of reasons. The tailgates didn't help with that right. at all. But you know, it's more than just being, you know, digitally savvy. There are a whole other set of skills out there that Unfortunately, a lot of you know, millennials aren't developing, and it's not just a millennial problem. This is a, a nationwide problem, and it hits all generations. Um, but millennials in particular, like I said, have a longer time to wade this out. Uh, and it's, there are a lot of trends out there you know, that we don't have control over. Politics being, you know, policy being one of them. Millennials, unfortunately, haven't stepped up to where they need to be in voting and mm -hmm. haven't necessarily taken control of even what they can take control of. And so, you know, millennials are certainly to blame in part for, um, for some of these trends. And I, my, it is my hope that we step up to the plate and begin to be better advocates for ourselves. Right. Uh, and I think part of that is knowing what the situation is and having some level of awareness um, and also just a, a fundamental belief that you can influence the future. So Gen FKD, is it a business or is it a nonprofit? It's a nonprofit. Okay. It's a nonprofit. Uh, we are very committed to ma maintaining our status as a nonprofit. Uh, I think that nonprofits are in a wonderful place in terms of the purpose that they can deliver because we're not worried about the bottom line all of the time. That being said, we do try to run our operations uh, in such a way that we know where all of our dollars are going and try to quantify as best as we can the, the value that we're delivering. And so some people are inclined to call us a business because of that or say that we run like a business. I think that's just running sensibly right. and, and wanting to know that you're making a difference. So where's your funding coming from? So we are very Can't lucky. Can't be millennials, right? Can't be millennials. No, it's <laughs> quite the opposite of millennials. Millennials, unfortunately, uh, don't have the amount of money that we need to sustain our operations. Although I will say, millennials are turning out to be one of the most philanthropic generations. Uh, three out of four millennials have donated to some kind of social good or cause that they believe in. Could be Mark Zuckerberg. Could be Mark Zuckerberg. It's not, maybe. Right, okay. Mark, if you're listening, we're open. Our <laughs> doors are always open. Um, I was very lucky when I was a sophomore in university when we started Gen FKD uh, to meet Bernie Marcus, who was a co-founder of Home Depot, uh, and fundamentally believed that millennials didn't have or are not turning out to have the same level of opportunity that he did when he started Home Depot uh, and was very interested in our idea, which was to equip more millennials to be in the financial position and to be in the economic situation. To uh, buy their first house. To buy their first house. And do renovations. Right, to do renovations so that they, Depot, you know, the stock right. price of Home Depot would go up. <laughs> or, in or, his words, right. to start the next Home Depot or to okay. start a version of it. Uh, and I so, shouldn't be so cynical. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, you can be. You know, who knows? Maybe, <laughs> maybe you're right. But he's retired now, so I doubt he's as concerned with that. Um, 
And so that's where our first major foundation uh, has kind of stepped up to the plate. And I have to say that they've been very generous to us over the past few years uh, and have stepped up and just recently signed a three-year commitment to us. Mm. So um, we know that our doors will be open and that we can keep serving and helping millennials. But mostly family foundations at this point um, are where we get our funding. Well, you got into the origin story of Gen FKD a little bit there. How about your origin story? You're from Harlem? I'm from Harlem. Yeah, I was born and raised in Harlem um, and was still live in Harlem to this day, uh, despite having moved around a little bit. Um, you know, and had a very cliche story in some ways or a very kind of iconolast story in terms of Harlem and grew up with a single parent, a single mother, uh, very strong building and community that my family had lived in since 1950s hmm. uh, and still lives into this day with my grandmother, my uncle, my two godmothers, my everybody was there from my mom's side of the family. But you uh, grew up in gentrifying Harlem. At the time, it wasn't gentrifying. Really? At the time, I... I feel like Harlem's been gentrifying since Bill Clinton left office and, and moved to Harlem. <laughs> well, so when I was born, he, was, he hadn't yet moved there. So okay. I was still... I was, I'm still old enough that I saw some of the Bill Clinton presidency. Right. Uh, so... But you were still growing up when he... When he did, made the decision discovered to Harlem, Harlem, right? I, I did. But <laughs> there, you know, I still had friends' parents who wouldn't drop me off in Harlem because they were afraid of Harlem. Right. I'd get dropped off at 96th Street and I'd have to take the train further up. Because they weren't going to open houses yet. They weren't going to open houses yet, and the townhomes weren't selling for $4.6 million like they mm. are now. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, I've seen, even in the past year, the most tremendous difference in Harlem and the the demographic in Harlem. Uh, that They're trying to rename it now, aren't they? God, please, let's not go there. <laughs> What's the <laughs> name? Soha. I, you know, I will say this, Harlem will always be Harlem, regardless of what the real estate developers try to rename it. But, you know, Harlem's a beautiful place, and it taught me a lot about community. And, yeah. uh, you know, in terms of our origin story, or the reason that I was compelled to start GenFKD, a lot of it was because, even though I didn't grow up with a lot of economic security, I had enough of a, a blanket around me and enough of a community around me that stepped up to the plate uh, and to instill into me a lot of values about education and a lot of values even about personal finance and how to manage what I did have. Where do those values come from? Those values come from, I think, looking out for your neighbor. Uh, right? who, who, was the, who was the financial mind in your extended household. And my, extended, my, you know, my financial mind, my academic mind was my Aunt Hope. She had been a lifelong educator and taught at A. Philip Randolph, which was just around the corner from where I grew up, uh, and you know, was a teacher and had done very well for herself and had been a principal at one point. And she's the one that taught me how to read, and she's the one who uh, taught me just how to save, right? And gave me really my first savings and really put me on a solid footing in terms of thinking about the future. Um, you know, and my mom was a great role model in that sense as well. And she worked tirelessly uh, and works tirelessly up to this day uh, at being a single parent. Um, you know, I'm, my dad is now back in my life, thankfully. Um, but, you know, we were a family, the coming of age, in the, a black family coming of age in the 1990s, and we struggled, you know, just like any other family or a lot of families across this country. Um, but there were people around us who were willing to step up to the plate, on Hope being one of them. Um, what do you consider to be the defining difference between 
having the opportunity to, to sort of see the light when it comes to self-sufficiency mm. and getting a leg up. You obviously uh, not only completed high school, but got mm -hmm. a higher education. And uh, folks in a similar situation who are missing certain ingredients that help them to do that. So there are a lot of missing ingredients, and there is certainly a role for self-sufficiency and responsibility, and there were a lot of times when I had to make decisions on my own and make decisions when it came to school and to saving and to, you know, what exactly my trajectory would look like. So there is a great deal of personal responsibility that's involved. At the same time, I think we have to realize, and I do this on a daily basis, that in terms of paying thanks to those who instilled in me those values and who were the links when I didn't have, where otherwise I might have fallen through the cracks. Mm -hmm. You know, I was very lucky in my education and my schooling in that, you know, my mom worked tirelessly to get me into a school that was on the Upper West Side as opposed to the school that I was necessarily zoned for. That was luck, that was work, and that was something that, you know, at the age of eight years old, no amount of self-sufficiency would have allowed me to do. Right. Uh, and so... Why did your mom do that? Because she knew the value of education. And How knew did she know? Her mom had sat on, you know, the... She had, my grandmother had been the president of the Parents Association across the country, the United States, like, Parent Association for public schools. And, Kate, you know, my grandmother came from the West Indies and just always worked to make sure that her children got an education because that was a fundamental value of theirs. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she knew and you know, worked kind of in policy and politics enough to that that could be a possibility. And right. that you know, if you talk to the right people and make the right things happen, she could give that to her child. And forever thankful that that was the case. And just because that showed me that there was another world, right? Mm -hmm. And that there, it, it exposed me greatly to uh, economic diversity, to social diversity. You know, it's impossible to think that New York Cities are actually the most segregated in terms of economics in the country. I was able to escape that, and I was able to not be economically segregated. Uh, and I think that that really informed a lot of how I think about the world and how I think about education and how I think about how I just interact with my peers. I, I think about this sometimes as a culture issue mm. more than it's an economic issue. Uh, my parents, my, my mom grew up in the segregated South, mm -hmm. Memphis, Tennessee, grew up poor, um, one of, you know, more than a dozen brothers and sisters. And, you know, one of her sisters moved north to New York eventually most of the other siblings moved north. They had this value around education that reminds me a lot of what I've come to associate with an immigrant mindset. Mm -hmm. You know, how there's one member of the family who might come to the United States and get a footing in some city and then bring the rest of the family with them. That actually happened within the country for this black family in the deep south that grew up under oppression and segregation and moved. But Somewhere, I don't know if it's the effect of pop culture combined with the different stages that our, our country has, has been through, somewhere that, in, that domestic immigrant mentality, at least the possibility for it, seems to have broken down, and I can't, I can't put a finger on why. It has. It has, and I, you know, I've seen it a lot in 
places like DC, where my dad now lives and where a lot of my family lives, uh, which has a very strong, you know, it's a chocolate city, right? Mm -hmm. um, I grew up there. Oh, did you? Yeah. Very nice. Yeah, New so York you, and so DC. You know, so yeah. you know it well. Um, and, you know, I see, you know, my extended family there and I see, you know, their friends and, you know, I just hang out, right, in DC. And I've seen that breakdown and just the, how people and how young people talk about education. It doesn't seem that there is the same appreciation or value to it. Uh, and I think that's because, you know, a lot of times in these communities, and now, you know, I'm conjecturing, the the role models that we see didn't necessarily come through education, right? Our most right. successful idols were are not necessarily successful because of the institutions that they went through. And now they worked extremely hard and tirelessly to get where they are, but it wasn't their ac academic footing that necessarily drove their success. Um, and I think because of that and because, you know, to be completely frank, a lot of our parents and our parents' parents may have appreciated education but didn't know how to get us out of the school that we were zoned for or how to put us into a better school. And sometimes that's because the policies that were in place actively discouraged that, right? Mm -hmm. And that's something that we see with school choice now, which is very contentious. But, you know, that is what allows a parent to make a decision about the opportunity that they have for their child or want to give to that child. Yeah, I'm all for school choice. And it is yeah. content. My, my wife is, is trained as a teacher and a mm -hmm. reading specialist, worked... Uh, in public schools and private schools. My mom uh, was a teacher as well as an artist. And I can get in trouble mm -hmm. being pro-school choice. Mm -hmm. But, too. you know, I went to D.C. public schools. Mm -hmm. um, and D.C. has a range mm -hmm. of public schools. At least it did 20-plus years ago. You could, you could go to the right school or many of the wrong schools. And, uh, you know, I, I went to a great elementary school, uh, Shepherd, in, in Northwest mm -hmm. D.C., which even then was Northwest D.C. Mm -hmm. And then for junior high, I went to Jefferson Junior High in Southwest, which is recently famous for keeping the education secretary out. And that school had a magnet program, but the school was kind of hood, right? It was, it was a rough place to be. And after two years, I had to get out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so and so we paid half tuition because my mom worked for Montgomery County Public Schools for me to go to Montgomery County Public Schools. Which are amazing. We paid to go to public yeah. school yeah. because I had to get out. Yeah. Is is that the answer? You know, not everybody can pay to get out, right? Right? And so you you know, your mom was amazing, right, in terms of the ability to do that and knowing that you needed that opportunity and, you know, to even work in Montgomery Public Schools. We shouldn't live in a country where we have to do that, is my belief, right? Where is that a parent should be put in a position where they feel that they have to pay to give their child access to opportunity, right? Right now, maybe that is the answer. I think that we have to work towards a country and a dynamic in this country where we value education enough that we are we see the system for what it is and see that it has to change mm -hmm. and see that parents have to be given more choice to make those decisions for their children and to see the effect that having uh, going to a school that is hood right for sometimes K through 12 is going to have on a person regardless of how strong their will is, regardless of how much self-sufficiency they may innately have, we are human. We are going to be subject to the tendencies of the people who are around us. 
We are going to be responsive to that. We are going to respond differently to a teacher that has to stand in front of a classroom of 45 than a classroom of 12 and can see the differences in our learning styles. We have to change our education compact in this country, K through 12, and in higher education. Talk about higher education. It used to be, as, as the boomers will remind us, that you could work your way through school and in some cases have no student loans. Mm -hmm. Go to a state school. And I mean, buy a house afterwards. Right. Because that's a thing. Hey. Uh, and, and in some places, you know, New York is still pretty good mm -hmm. um, for the city university system, right? But largely, that seems to have gone away. Yeah, you know, CUNY has especially done an amazing system, uh, or amazing, has evolved greatly in the past 10 to 20 years. And funnily enough, my grandmother sits on a research board at CUNY, and so I've been, I've heard ad nauseum about the developments at CUNY, and I grew up across the street from the City College of New York. Mm. Um, so that was kind of a, for me, always a hallmark of education, and growing up on a college campus, it was never a question of whether or not I was going to go to college, mm -hmm. um, for a number of reasons. And... You know, we're lucky to have that in New York, and I think New Yorkers are lucky to have that institution. We, much with K-12 through education, have unfortunately, I think, identified that college is now an economic necessity. And you look at a lot of the data, and they show that the majority of the jobs that are going to be created into the future need some kind of post-secondary credential. And that is a college degree, that is an associate's degree, some kind of certification that you've gone through through uh, extended schooling. Yeah, and completed it. And completed it. And completed it. And that's so the many biggest start problem. Right. And, and never finish. finish. And yeah. never finish. And are caught in a horrible economic cycle because of that, because they take on the debt and they can't pay it back because the jobs that they're going to are not paying them obviously the fitting amount. You know, but even for those who do go to college and who do get into a good college, we're seeing a problem where even the notion of underemployment is a major issue. You know, the New York Fed tracks this number uh, of underemployment, meaning and measuring the number of college students that go to college, graduate with a degree, but then are working in jobs where they don't have to have the degree. Right. You know, we have our own internal numbers on that, uh, that, on surveys that we've done, and that number is sometimes as high as 40%, depending on who we survey and where they are. That's a problem, because that means that you're taking on upwards of $10,000 in debt, often very much more to go to school, but then the job that you're getting after that isn't corresponding to the fact that you have that degree. Is the problem, I mean, a disconnected observer might say, mm -hmm. okay, well, if you're not given the job that suits your qualifications, create the job that suits your qualifications. That's harder to do when you've got debt. Correct. So is the problem that we're churning out uh, a, a generation that has a harder time going to college and paying for it. B, if they do pay for it, they're in an economy where a good job is harder to find. And C, they've got so much debt that they can't afford to take on the risk necessary to create their own job, even if they have the chutzpah to do it. Right. You know, we've surveyed our students and, you know, more than 66% of them want to be entrepreneurs. There is a fire. More than what Sixty-six. Wow. Okay. So there is an innate fire in this generation to be the the tech entrepreneur, to be the one who creates jobs, who creates their own jobs, and you know, as Mark Zuckerberg said in his commencement speech at Harvard, to really help people instill purpose 
in not only their lives, but help others find that purpose. The caveat is when we ask why haven't you or why don't you, a lot of it's access to capital because they don't have the access to credit, mm. because 41% of them don't have a credit line and can't get a credit line because of the debt that they have you know, or the student debt that they have. Is or, it the student debt? Because the student debt you can't do so, so much about right. in, in a lot of some, cases. Right. Unless, you, unless you decide to go to a school, you know, community college first, you, know, you, you, you have the financial smarts to kind of assess um, which direction is going to get you the most bang for your buck right. education-wise. Is it largely that or is there also just really bad financial decisions that even young people have made where they've gotten themselves into credit card trouble. There definitely are. You know, it's a, it, the two conflate, right? You know, okay. there are a lot of bad financial decisions being made and there are a lot of, there's a lack of savings, there's either a lack of credit or, you know, a prevalence of bad credit, uh, and then the addition of student debt and student loans, which is, you know, for us, why we started with financial literacy, because we saw that as one of the greatest impediments to not only your personal financial success and your ability to start a family and get a house, but also to start a business and to be the entrepreneur. And, you know, access to capital is low for millennials, where they feel that they can access that in part because of their financial history. And we had grown up in a generation where a lot of our parents were able to support themselves on credit and didn't necessarily have the best financial behavior, but that didn't come to light until much later. Right. And so a lot of families all across this country have never had the conversation with their children about finances and about how to manage their finances because a lot of parents themselves don't know what they're doing. And that's okay, right? That's, it's not necessarily the parent's fault. It was just a misunderstanding in the, you know, of this time. Oh, that's it, kind of you. It's kind, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to be very <laughs> kind. I'm trying not to tell the parents that they've messed up. Because I'm thinking about it, I mean, a lot, in a lot of cases, I'm trying to think of, you know, people I know who, whose parents were smart with money, mm -hmm. who ended up being dumb with money. Mm. The, 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 I mean, yes, there are the prodigal children out there, but usually they were kind of headstrong dumb like they were determined to be dumb they had mm -hmm. no sense whatsoever anyway right 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 I mean, they were going to speed even if there was a speed sign you know a speed limit yeah like a lot of times you know knowledge does get handed down one way or another you know i see people if they were a professional athletes and their kids end up being pretty good in sports because you know they know how to right. train their they were kids raised around right there. yeah in, in sport they're they're raised around it they think they're going to be right. good at that M music same thing um math same thing Money? Maybe not the same thing. I think, it's, I, I think that it is, in a lot of communities and in a lot of families, an inherited behavior. Money is something that's very easy to mess up. It's a very complicated system in terms of, particularly when it comes to investing, if you haven't, if you don't have that familiarity. But, you know, I look at, you know, friends that I went to school with, uh, because I was able to, you know, go to schools where, where my friends, as of fifth grade, were already talking about how much they were saving, mm -hmm. right? And because that was part of the conversation around the household. There are a lot of schools, probably like your middle school, where the, that was not the conversation. And it was about your triple fat goose coat. Or you stole the words out of my mouth. <laughs> or the Nike the Dunks. Nikes. Or yeah. the Jordans. Yeah. It was Jordans, right. but yeah, still is. And but, still yeah. is. You know, and so 
that's something culturally that we have to evaluate. And I think that's a conversation that we're trying to have with students now in hopes that they have it with their children. But to be frank, we still need to have it with the parents. And it is, you know, there are always going to be those who are headstrong and make poor decisions and bad decisions with money or take risks. And, you know, hopefully people are in a position where they can take risks and because sometimes those pay off. But there are a lot of people financially who don't have that ability and just need to have that rainy day fund, who need to set aside that little bit of a cushion so that in an economic downturn, they're not struggling to make it. There are a lot of students out there that we work with now who are not in that situation, mm -hmm. who the moment after graduation won't have any savings. And so if they don't have a job right after school, they're in a lot of trouble. But at the same time, there are some such as some of our, you know, some students that I've spoken with that have already saved ten to $15,000 by the time they're ready to graduate. Why is that? Because their parents had that conversation with them and they've been saving since the time they were in elementary or middle school. Right. To close, single biggest policy move as far as the positive impact that it could have on Gen FKD, and I don't mean your organization, I mean millennials. Millennials. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good and hard question. You know, I think that we need to, re and this is, um, this is, I'm gonna be kind of circumnavigating the question. I think we need to redefine the social contract that we have with universities and education in terms of their ability or their, how responsible they are for their outcomes. You know, there are a lot of other hmm. countries, Australia being one of them, where a student's debt payment is in part tied to the university, and the university is partially responsible for that debt because they believe that their universities are responsible in part for the outcomes of the student. I think that we need to move from a system where you graduate and no longer, and the university is not responsible for you doesn't even have to so much as keep track of how you're doing financially, how you're doing economically, and have that be part of the conversation. And I think that should be in K through 12 education, and I think that should be in higher ed. Uh, and I really- In K through 12 education, the outcome being what? Getting into a trade or into higher education? Think, or being economically secure, right? I think that you know, we are, especially now, not everybody has to go to college. Not everybody even necessarily needs to go to community college. But I think that we need to make sure and track students to make sure that they're on a path to careers and on a path to self-sufficiency. You know, right now, we work in an education system where you go to a K through five school most of the time. The moment that you go to middle school, there's a disconnect. You're a completely different student. There's no data that goes over. There's none, your report cards barely go over. Your teacher evaluations barely go over. You're a new student. We don't look back. Then you go to middle school. You go to high school, it's the exact same thing. And then you go to college, possibly, it's the exact same thing. And then you graduate, and then what? You know, and more than ever now, when we look at how the economy is changing, mm -hmm. we have to have a system where you can reliably learn throughout your lifetime. This whole idea of continuous learning is going to, I guarantee you, be a bigger part of the conversation in the next five to 10 years because of this average shelf life of skills that is only five. So people are going to have to continuously be engaged in the process of learning. And I think to do that, we are going to have to rely on all of our educational institutions to have more responsibility and more transparency 
about how well their students are doing and where they're going. The transparency I can get on board with. The responsibility, ah, I don't know. Because I, I, I sat on an alumni board for my alma mater, DePaul University. Mm -hmm. And it happens to be a school where a huge percentage of the graduates go on to be gainfully employed mm -hmm. or, you know, go get their PhDs, master's degrees, et cetera. And, and they're proud of that. And, and they want to advertise it and market based on it. But there's also this trend going around now of like guarantees, mm. where it's like, we promise you mm -hmm. that if you get out of school within this amount of time, you'll have a job. It's something in me is like, ah, I don't know. That's not the real world. Like there aren't guarantees. You gotta hustle, right? And plus, we, we got the internet now. You can take online courses if you need to change skills. Like nobody should have to promise you if the field is fair, if there really is a market for the skill that you're going after, if you go in with your eyes wide open and you make sure, hey, I'm going to a school that trains people in this area because I can see the data, you shouldn't need any kind of a guarantee, should you? Right. I, I, and I don't think that you have to have a guarantee, right? Because like you said, there are no guarantees. And a lot of that is where your personal grit comes in and that is where the characteristics that are going to make you successful develop and come to fruition. But I, when it comes to responsibility, mm. I don't think that, you know, a student who is in your situation should have to pay half of the tuition to go to a school in Montgomery County. And I think that a student that t puts himself into debt and credibly does the right thing, which you know if you have transparency around the classes that they took, their GPA, their attendance, and, did the, and went to the career center and did the advising, I think that, that they should have a reasonable expectation that if they did the right, if they followed what the university or the school or our educational social compact told them to do, that they will find maybe not the highest paying job, but they will find a decent career or a decent landing pad. And in terms of responsibility, I think it's really just a willingness to engage in that conversation. Mm. And it's not, you know, saying that we're going to close the university because, you know, 300 students didn't find jobs after graduation. Though some of them. Some of them maybe need to do close. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, and they, you know, realistically, small schools all across this country are actually closing. And yeah. it's a conversation that isn't really being spoken about, but a lot of small colleges are closing and a lot of mergers are happening in the higher education space for this reason. But we just don't have enough of the transparency and I don't think enough of the commitment from universities and from education in general to talk about are we doing the right thing for students? Mm -hmm. Because I think we've been caught in this idea that education is good because it's education. Right. Right? And yes, it is. And that it pays for itself. And it pays for itself. Because it's education. And, right. And, you know, you can't quantify it. And liberal arts are great, which they are. Right? But this idea that they're just great because they are. And they teach you. Come on. Right. You've got to be real. able to connect it to something. You have to be able to connect it to something. Yeah. And if we want to talk about economic inequality, and if we want to talk about how do you change the social dynamic in this country, it's not always going to be done just through economic policy, you know, or through tax restructuring or any of those things. Those are important, but a lot of it does come back to education and how we view the role of education in preparing people for the future. Do we believe that education has a role in preparing students? I do. I would like all universities and all education to do. 
Because even if it's not about how much money you're making, that fundamental question of can you find your purpose? Do you feel fulfilled? We want to live in a country where everybody's happy with what they do, where people are comfortable financially and secure. Let's build the institutions that can do that. Mm -hmm. We don't have to take anything for granted. We can, I fundamentally believe, we have the ability to build an education system that is able to, if not guarantee, but credibly commit that they are going to help you find your way in this economy and be prepared for the future. So that in 30 years from now, or 100 years from now, we're not looking back and saying, what went wrong? Why have we not progressed? Or why are we now in this wave of automation and AI, AI robot type you know, scenario where people can't keep up or find jobs? Yeah. The pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. The third pillar, yeah. a big part of the reason why we're here. Justin, thanks. Thanks so much, John. My thanks to Justin Dent. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter. There you'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook and search for John Fort, and Twitter will work to, hey, you know what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend, drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.